from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. It's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, our 125th episode, we'll be tackling one of the best movies of the decade, as well as one of my favorites of the decade, Robert Zemeckis' Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But before we get started on this final podcast for 2023, I wanted to remind listeners that the podcast will be going on a hiatus from late February to early May 2024. My daughter Penny will be delivered on February 22nd, and I will be spending the next two months making sure mother and daughter are well taken care of. But before that, there will be at least three new episodes for the new year. First, I'll be tackling our first ever listener suggestion on British filmmaker Mick Jackson's first dramatic narrative feature, 1984's Threads. In late January, we'll be taking a look back at the short career of actor, writer, producer, director, and distributor H.B. Toby Halicki, best known for his 1974 film Gone in 60 Seconds. The first time this show will be spending a good amount of time talking about a non-80s movie. And then for Valentine's Day, we'll be visiting my favorite romantic comedy of the decade, 1987's Roxanne, written by and starring Steve Martin. So if you haven't done so already, please make sure to follow us on whichever podcatching source that you get the show on, so you know when those episodes become available and when I return from that hiatus. And with that, let's get to our feature presentation, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And as always, before we get to the movie, we have to go back in time. But this time, not that far back. June 6, 1981, to be precise. Gary K. Wolf, a 40-year-old author of such sci-fi dystopian books as Killer Bowl and A Generation Removed, would see the publication of his fourth novel, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, released in the United States. Unlike his previous novels, this one was squarely centered in the mystery genre, albeit with many genre-bending plot points. In the book, it's the early 1980s, and we are in a world where humans live side-by-side with life-size cartoon characters. On page one, we are introduced to our two main characters, Eddie Valiant, a hard-boiled detective in the mold of Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade, and Roger Rabbit, a second-tier comic strip character who wants to hire Valiant to find out why his employers, Rocco and Dominic DeCreasy, will neither give Roger his own comic strip, as he says they promised when he signed a 20-year contract with them, or sell his contract to a mystery person who Roger has heard wants to buy the contract. Roger was once a promising comic strip character who, since signing his contract, has been reduced to basically appearing in the background of a strip led by Baby Herman, a dopey, obese, thumb-sucking sniveller. But he's got enough still to put Valiant on retainer for at least a week, so Valiant decides to take the case. It's important to note that for the sake of this story, comic strip characters like Roger and Baby Herman don't actually speak, but communicate through word balloons. Cartoon strips are not drawn, but photographed, and the word balloons you see in those strips are the characters giving their lines, and that tunes like Roger and Jessica can create mentally created projections of themselves, doppelgangers, to handle dangerous stunts like having a piano dropped on their heads. As Valiant starts to look into the case, it looks like this may be a legal matter. Valiant goes to see the DeGreasy brothers who show Valiant Roger's contract, which makes no mention of a solo starring strip for the rabbit. 
and they mention they have not received any offers to buy Roger's contract. As he continues his investigation, Valiant learns that Roger and his wife, Jessica, separated a few weeks earlier, and that she may now be together with one of the DeGreasy brothers. After an attack on Roger that may have been perpetrated by the rabbit himself, Valiant finds Roger dead in the rabbit's home, with his last word bubble implicating his wife as the murderer. And then things get really weird. One thing who censored Roger Rabbit definitely is not is a Disney story. But someone at the Walt Disney Company read the book and saw something that could be revolutionary for the company. A live-action, animated hybrid movie not unlike Mary Poppins. The 1964 musical that would be the only film from the company nominated for Best Picture in Walt's lifetime. That unknown person brought the book to Ron Miller, the president of Walt Disney Productions and the son-in-law of the namesake founder of the company. Miller had been looking for projects that would push the company to explore new avenues of storytelling. And while he agreed that who censored Roger Rabbit might be a bridge too far in terms of what defined a Disney movie, the seeds for a classic were present and allowed for the movie rights to be purchased. Once those rights had been secured, the company spent some time looking for the right writer or writers to adapt the novel into a movie, but make it a Disney movie. Keep the tone of the story, a detective trying to solve a mystery, intact, but tone down the story from its more risque aspects. And they would find the right pair of writers in-house. Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman had come to the studio when their screenplay for the movie that would become the 1983 film Trenchcoat was brought to Disney shortly after the movie rights to Who Censored Roger Rabbit had been purchased. Their marching orders were simple. Use whatever you want from the book, but keep everything in the PG area. Price and Seaman would end up throwing out the vast majority of the book, keeping only four major characters, Valiant, Roger, Jessica, and Baby Herman, and a handful of dialogue. They would move the story from the modern age to the 1940s, but decided to dump the DeGreasy brothers for a new villain. But they weren't sure if the villain should be Jessica, Baby Herman, or another character. With sections of the script in hand, Disney brought in 25-year-old animator Daryl Van Sitters, who had just finished work on The Fox and the Hound, to work on test footage combining the animation and live-action aspects of the project. As many of the groundbreaking and award-winning effects used to create Mary Poppins would not work for a movie like Roger Rabbit. Van Sitters would hire Paul Rubens, a Los Angeles comedian who had already created the Pee Wee Herman character, but was still years away from making his breakthrough movie to voice Roger Rabbit, and bring in Disney actor Peter Renaday, a veteran of no less than 16 Disney movies over the previous 15 years, to play the live-action Eddie Valiant. An up-and-coming filmmaker named Robert Zemeckis had heard about Roger Rabbit through the filmmaking grapevine in 1982 and contacted Disney about becoming the director of the film. They would decline his services despite Zemeckis' connection to Steven Spielberg, as the young director's two previous movies, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars, were box office disappointments. As was 1941, the comedy Zemeckis and his writing partner Bob Gale had written for Steven Spielberg. The Roger Rabbit 
project would lose some steam in the Disney pipeline in 1984, when Ron Miller was ousted from the presidency of the company due to a stockholder revolt over the direction of the company. But Jeffrey Katzenberg, one of the executives brought in to replace the Miller regime, would soon discover Roger Rabbit and, like Miller, saw this project as the movie that would quote-unquote save the feature animation division, which had seen nearly two decades of declining status following the death of Walt Disney in 1966. With the approval of Michael Eisner, the new president at Walt Disney Productions and Katzenberg's partner at Paramount before they were both brought over to Disney, Katzenberg would approach Steven Spielberg and Spielberg's producing partners at Amblin Entertainment, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, in 1985 to produce Roger Rabbit alongside Disney. While he would not be available to direct the film himself, Spielberg would relish the opportunity to make a movie of such technical wizardry. But there would be a roadblock to getting the movie made rather quickly. Based on the most recent version of the Price and Seaman script, the budget Amblin envisioned on the film was $50 million, which would have made the film the most expensive movie produced since 1978's Superman, although that film's $55 million budget included sections that were filmed specifically for Superman 2. Disney balked at that price and spent time whittling the project down to a $30 million budget. But that price would come with a lot of creative control ceded to Spielberg, as well as a large percentage of the box office profits. This would end up greatly benefiting the film. Spielberg worked hard with Robert Daly and Terry Semmel, the heads of Warner Brothers, to get the studio to lend Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, and a number of other Looney Tunes characters to the production. Never before had Bugs and Mickey Mouse, or Daffy and Donald Duck appeared together on screen, which would be sure to delight children of all ages. Spielberg would also be able to secure the use of other non-Disney, non-Warners cartoon characters like Betty Boop, Droopy, and Woody Woodpecker for the film to add extra levels of authenticity. In 1985, while he was deep in the fight to get his version of Brazil released in the theaters, Terry Gilliam was approached to direct the film. Gilliam was thrilled to be offered the job, but felt the film would be too technologically challenging for him, and turned the offer down. In 1996, Gilliam would express regret turning the film down to a reporter for the British film magazine Empire, saying that it was pure laziness on his part that led to that decision to turn it down. Spielberg's second choice would jump at the chance to make it. Thankfully for Robert Zemeckis, in the three years since Disney rejected his offer to direct the film, he had made two hit films, 1984's Romancing the Stone and 1985's Back to the Future, the latter having been produced by Amblin Entertainment. While Spielberg worked the foreground, writers Price and Seaman were brought back aboard and were given carte blanche to study the Disney and Warner Brothers cartoons of the golden age of animation, with a specific interest in the works of Tex Avery and Bob Clampett. They also studied the real-life history of Los Angeles in the post-World War II era and discovered a real-life plotline almost as good as the one that inspired Robert Town to write Chinatown. Beginning in 1901, there was a trolley system in the Los Angeles area called the Pacific Electric Railway Company that ran from San Fernando in the north to Santa Monica in the west to Newport Beach in the south and San Bernardino in the east. Within the first 10 years, the system 
affectionately dubbed the red cars by locals for their distinctive color, covered more than 1,000 miles of track in the greater Southern California area. And with tickets costing only a nickel, most citizens relied on the red car instead of a personal motorized vehicle, simply out of cost. Much of what Price and Seaman would incorporate about the Red Line's demise into the final screenplay really did happen in Los Angeles. Although the large-scale acquisition of land for the freeway system did not begin in earnest until 1951, and certainly wasn't planned out by a psychotic cartoon. In fact, the character of Judge Doom would be one of the very last characters created for the movie, as neither writer liked the idea of Jessica Rabbit or Baby Herman as the big bad. For the animation, Disney wanted Daryl Van Sitters to continue on as the animation director, but Spielberg and Zemeckis wanted Richard Williams, an Oscar-winning animation director with more than 25 years of animating experience under his belt. Disney reluctantly agreed, even when learning that the production would need to move from the Disney Studios lot in Burbank to London, since Williams was reluctant to move to Los Angeles. When it came time to casting, Spielberg knew who he wanted to play Eddie Valiant. Harrison Ford. Ford was inarguably one of the biggest movie stars at the time, and Spielberg had been looking to work with Ford again in any capacity since the end of shooting on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in 1983. But being one of the biggest movie stars in the world comes with a price tag that was too much for the production, especially with the price tag growing due to the production's move to London. Chevy Chase was second on Spielberg's list for Eddie Valiant, but Chase was not interested. Bill Murray was offered the role, but he apparently never got the message. Eddie Murphy said no because he didn't understand the concept of humans and cartoons existing in the same space, although as soon as he saw the film, he instantly regretted his decision. Others considered for the role included such disparate actors as Charles Grodin, Ed Harris, Jack Nicholson, Edward James Olmos, Robert Redford, Wallace Shawn, Sylvester Stallone, and Robin Williams. But in the end, Spielberg would decide on a little-known 44-year-old British actor, Bob Hoskins, who would soon be featured in a small role in Terry Gilliam's Brazil, but would become more famous in 1986 when Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa was released, netting the actor his first and only Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Spielberg had loved Hoskins in the 1980 British gangster drama The Long Good Friday, and felt Hoskins looked like he belonged in the 1940s. For the role of Roger Rabbit, Paul Rubens was no longer available due to the success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure and his new commitment to a CBS Saturday morning show, Pee-wee's Playhouse. So the filmmakers decided on Los Angeles-based comedian Charles Fleischer, who ironically was best known at the time for his appearances in the 1981 Oliver Stone horror film The Hand and the original A Nightmare on Elm Street. For the big bad, Judge Doom, Robert Zemeckis wanted Tim Curry. But when Curry's audition footage was edited together, Zemeckis, Spielberg, Michael Eisner, and Jeffrey Katzenberg all considered the performance too terrifying for the tone they were looking for. Conversely, John Cleese's audition footage was found to be too funny and not scary enough. They also considered F. Murray Abraham, Eddie Deason, Christopher Lee, Roddy McDowell, Peter O'Toole, and Sting for the lead villain role, until Spielberg and Zemeckis decided on Doc Brown himself, Christopher Lloyd, who based the character on his own Klingon role of Krug 
in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. The rest of the cast was filled with a mix of Hollywood veterans like Stubby Kay as Marvin Acme and Joanna Cassidy as Eddie's barmaid girlfriend Dolores, as well as veteran voice actors like Mel Blanc, June Foray, and Mae Castell, who in addition to being the best-known voice actor for the role of Betty Boop, but also played Olive Oil in the original Max Fleischer Popeye cartoons. As the production got closer to its filming start date, the budget kept climbing even higher, and Zemeckis and Spielberg and the writers started having to cut things from the script because of cost. Judge Doom would lose a majority of his entourage. He was supposed to have an animated vulture sitting on one of his shoulders, cut due to technical and budgetary reasons. Doom was also supposed to have a suitcase with him at all times, which, when he opened, would house 12 small animated kangaroos who would act as an immediate jury, with baby joeys who would pop out of the pouches holding letters that would read, You are guilty, when put together. In case you didn't get that, it's a literal kangaroo court. And that was cut due to technical and budgetary reasons. Doom originally had seven hyena lackeys mimicking the seven dwarves, but two of them, slimy and sleazy, were, well, you got it, cut due to technical and budgetary reasons. Also cut, but not for budgetary or technical reasons, a reveal in the film that Doom was the hunter that killed Bambi's mother. And then there was an issue with the title. Since Roger was no longer being censored in the movie, the project would need a title. Now, if you've read Jack Matthews' The Battle of Brazil, his excellent book about the fight between Terry Gilliam and Universal Studios on nearly every aspect of the final film, you know how stupid some of the titles Hollywood executives can come up with as a supposed viable film name. Brazil's potential selection of titles were truly bottom-of-the-barrel muck, so seeing some of the working titles Disney came up with doesn't fill me with any sense of dread. Would you see a film about a human detective and a cartoon rabbit working together to solve a mystery called Murder in Toontown? Or how about just tunes? Maybe Dead Tunes Don't Pay Bills? Or The Toontown Trial? Trouble in Toontown? Eddie Goes to Toontown? Those are all lousy titles, but still light years away from the dreck suggested for Brazil, like If Osmosis, Who Are You, Nude Descending Bathroom Scale, Dreamscape, which incidentally was the name of a 1984 Dennis Quaid sci-fi movie that had already been released into theaters by 20th Century Fox almost a year earlier. Or maybe Explanata Fortunata is not my real name. Blank slash blank. Can anybody here play the symbols? The ball-bearing electro-memory circuit buster. This escalator doesn't stop at your station and my personal quote-unquote favorite. New Yak, New Yak, and other bestial places. Finally, thankfully. They settled on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Live-action shooting on Who Framed Roger Rabbit began in London on November 2nd, 1986, and lasted for seven and a half months. And as Spielberg expected, the complicated process of creating a live-action film where a plethora of gadgetry would need to be used on set so the animators knew where they needed to animate would cause delays and mechanical failures, driving the budget up yet again. 
when the official budget hit $40 million about two months into the production, with the film a few weeks over schedule already, Michael Eisner was ready to shut the whole thing down, until Jeffrey Katzenberg reminded him how much they already invested in the film and how important it would be to forge a good working relationship with Steven Spielberg, who had already directed 10 movies and produced a dozen more, and this was the first time the studio had ever gotten to work with him. Shut this one down, and they might never get the chance to make another film with him again. After filming was completed in London, the production would move to Los Angeles for a month of effects plate shooting for Industrial Light and Magic and some pickup shots of local flavor. For example, the fun entrance of the old Lucille Ball Desi Arnaz studio, Desilu, was used as the entrance for Maroon Cartoon Studios. Animation and effects work would continue for another year, up until just a few weeks before its expected June 1988 release. When the film was locked, the final budget would be just over $50 million, right where Spielberg and his team said it would be two years earlier. Roy E. Disney, the head of Walt Disney Feature Animation, and the nephew of Walt Disney, agreed with Jeffrey Katzenberg that because of some of the still risque moments within the film, the movie should be released under the Touchstone Pictures banner, which, along with the PG rating, would hopefully indicate to parents that this movie might not be wholly appropriate for the littler kids. But the parents did not care. Opening on 1,045 screens on Wednesday, June 22nd, and supported by promotional partners like Coca-Cola, Macy's, and McDonald's, Roger Rabbit would gross $11.22 million in its first weekend, and a total of $14.85 million in its first five days, becoming the most successful Disney opening week release ever. For months, you couldn't get away from Roger Rabbit. He'd be seen drinking Diet Coke during commercial breaks on some of the biggest television shows the entire summer. Macy's stores across America had entire sections devoted to Robert Jarabbit gear. Jackets, jewelry, t-shirts, toys and games. A McDonald's commercial would show Roger and Jessica in the back of a 1940s limo, getting a supersized meal through the drive-thru, which would include one of three collectible cups featuring the stars of the movie. A behind-the-scenes special, Roger Rabbit and the Secrets of Toontown, would air on CBS in early September 1988, hosted by the film's female lead, Joanna Cassidy, and featuring appearances by Bob Hoskins and Kathleen Turner, as well as, for some reason, Gene Kelly and Dick Van Dyke. You can find that special and a number of Roger Rabbit-themed commercials from 1988 on YouTube rather easily. By the end of 1988, more than six months after its release, Roger Rabbit would still be playing in 463 screens and would be the highest-grossing film of the year with nearly $150 million in ticket sales. Rain Man would eventually beat Roger Rabbit in total box office, but well into 1989 and after winning several Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Actor for Dustin Hoffman. Before the calendar year 1988, Roger would outgross the second highest grossing movie coming to America by nearly $30 million. The movie was somewhat of a success on the awards front. Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman were nominated by the Writers Guild of America for Best Adapted Screenplay, and the Directors Guild of America would nominate Robert Zemeckis for Best Director. The Golden Globes that year would nominate the film for Best Musical or Comedy Film, 
and Bob Hoskins would get a nod for Best Actor in a musical or comedy film. But when it came to the big ones, the Academy Awards, the movie would be nominated for six awards, all in the technical categories like Art Direction, Cinematography, and Best Sound. It would end up winning three awards for Best Editing, Best Sound Effects Editing, and for Best Visual Effects. Richard Williams would also be awarded a special achievement for his work on the film during a memorable six-minute presentation that included Robin Williams wearing Mickey Mouse ears and gloves, while Williams and fellow presenter Charles Fleischer rapped about tuned consciousness. This is Frederick Williams. He's really the best because he draws cartoons much better than the rest. <laughs> he draws his tunes with style and class. He drew my wife and she's got a nice smile. <laughs> Take it, Popeye. He gives them life. He gives them smarts. He gives them smarts and he gives them life. Too bad he didn't draw my wife. <laughs> there would be three Roger Rabbit cartoon short follow-ups over the years. The first, Tummy Trouble, was attached to prints of the 1989 film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and was the first new animated short Disney had produced in 16 years to accompany the original release of a feature film, since Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 in 1974. In Tummy Trouble, Roger must take baby Herman to the emergency room after the baby swallows a rattle hole. The second cartoon short, Roller Coaster Rabbit, would cause some friction between Disney and Spielberg. Not that there was anything wrong with the short, it's silly and funny. No, the trouble came from which film the short would be attached to. Spielberg wanted the short to be put in front of Arachnophobia, the John Goodman-Jeff Daniels horror comedy film that was a co-production between Disney and Amblin Entertainment, while Michael Eisner wanted it in front of Warren Beatty's film adaptation of the Dick Tracy comic series. Eisner won that battle. But because Spielberg owned half of the Roger Rabbit character, he retaliated by canceling Hair in My Soup, another Roger Rabbit cartoon short that had already started pre-production. The third and final Roger Rabbit cartoon short was called Trail Mix-Up, which starts with Baby Herman and Roger going camping and ends with the literal destruction of the planet. You know, for the kids. Trail Mix-Up was placed in front of the Reese Witherspoon adventure drama A Far-Off Place, another co-production between Disney and Amblin. But when the movie failed at the box office, even with the new Roger Rabbit short, three additional planned shorts called Clean and Oppressed, Beach Blanket Bay, and Bronco Bustin' Bunny were all canceled before beginning production. Gary K. Wolf would also write three more books in the Roger Rabbit literary universe. The first called Who Plugged Roger Rabbit, yes, with four Ps, was released in 1981 and was a literal reboot of the original book to more closely match the details established in the film, even going so far as to completely retcon the original Who Censored Roger Rabbit book halfway through the new book. Who Whacked Roger Rabbit, hitting bookshelves in 2013, finds Eddie enjoying his work as a bodyguard for Gary Cooper until he discovers his boss is about to make a screwball comedy with none other than Roger Rabbit himself. The final book in the series, Jessica Rabbit, Zerious Business, with an X, switched the focus to how an ordinary human woman from a tuneless world became the beloved tune goddess we know today. 
Then there were the comic books, the graphic novels, the video games, the theme park lands and rides. Everything you could think of. Except for a sequel. But not for lack of trying. In 1989, Steven Spielberg hired an up-and-coming 23-year-old writer, J.J. Abrams, to work on the first draft of a post-sequel. But the original storyline Abrams came up with was abandoned. But at least he got a couple of original cells from Tummy Trouble for his effort. In 1991, Nat Maudlin, a writer for such television shows as Barney Miller, Newhart, and Night Court, was hired to write a prequel called The Toon Platoon. Roger and his human friend Richie leave their Midwest home to find Roger's mother, taking them to Hollywood. In Hollywood, Roger meets a struggling young actress named Jessica Krupnik and gets himself enlisted in the army. Jessica is kidnapped by Nazis and forced to make pro-Hitler broadcasts, and Roger and Richie head to Europe to rescue her. Jessica is saved, Roger and Richie are given a hero's welcome on Hollywood Boulevard, and Roger reunites with his mother and his father, Bugs Bunny. But in 1993, after making Schindler's List, Spielberg decided he could no longer use Nazis for satirical measures and allowed the project to die off. Four years later, in 1997, Michael Eisner would hire Sherry Stoner, an actress who was the human model for Ariel in the 1989 Disney animated feature, who had successfully turned to screenwriting with the Amblin-produced 1995 adaptation of Casper the Friendly Ghost and her writing partner, Deanne Oliver, to rework Maudlin's script, now titled Who Discovered Roger Rabbit, to replace the World War II aspects of the story and move the action to the entertainment industry. Roger would still be looking for his mother, but now he inadvertently becomes a Broadway and Hollywood star. Eisner and the Disney brass, minus Jeffrey Katzenberg, who had been fired from the company in 1995 and soon joined Spielberg and David Geffen at a new studio called DreamWorks, were so impressed with Stoner and Oliver's new take that they brought Alan Menken, the eight-time Oscar-winning lyricist and composer from The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Hercules, to write five new songs for the movie. In 1998, working with Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, Disney commissioned some test footage to be shot and animated at their animation unit in Lake Buena Vista, Florida, just outside the Disney World resorts, to see how a new film could be made in this new world that included computer-generated images. A mix of CG, traditional hand-drawn animation, and live-action footage, the test did not please anyone. A second test with the hand-drawn animated characters replaced 100% with CG characters was an even bigger disappointment. Not because it looked bad, but because the projected budget for the new film with the CG characters would have exceeded $100 million. The project would be shelved again, and only one of the five songs Alan Menken wrote for the new movie, ironically titled This Only Happens in the Movies, would ever be recorded by Broadway actress Carrie Butler in 2008 for her debut solo album. In 2007, Frank Marshall told a writer for the MTV Movies blog that he was still open to the idea of a Roger Rabbit sequel. And two years later, Robert Zemeckis told a different writer for the MTV Movies blog that he was still interested in making it as well. A few months later, while promoting his performance capture CG 3D version of A Christmas Carol, starring Jim Carrey, 
Zemeckis would tell reporters that not only was he still interested, but that the original writers of the film, Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, were writing a new script, and that the tunes would still be hand-drawn animation, while the human characters would be performance capture CG 3D characters. In 2010, Bob Hoskins reportedly signed on to reprise his role as Eddie Valiant in the new film, but expressed some concerns about the performance capture stuff. Later that year, Zemeckis changed his tune, no pun intended, and stated that the film would be a mix of hand-drawn animation and live action, just like the original film, although some lighting effects and tune props would be completed digitally. Don Hahn, the producer of Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, who was an associate producer on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, would tell a reporter for the British film magazine Empire in late 2010 that fans of the film would be, quote, very, very, very happy, unquote, in the near future. But in 2012, Bob Hoskins would retire from acting due to Parkinson's disease and pass away two years after that. But that wouldn't stop Zemeckis from dreaming big. While promoting his movie Allied in 2016, the director continued to talk about the Roger Rabbit sequel, which he said would take place a few years after the events of the first movie and include a digital version of Bob Hoskins to play a ghostly version of Eddie Valiant. But he would also note that the current corporate structure had no appreciation for Roger Rabbit and doubted another movie would be made. Seven years later, we're still here, waiting for the return of Roger Rabbit. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again early in the new year when episode 126 is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about who censored Roger Rabbit, who framed Roger Rabbit, and other topics we covered this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Happy New Year. (laughs) 